Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome. This is Drive-by Cinema. I am your host, Rick, and here is the other host, Paul. Hi. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm waving. Paul, welcome. This is episode six of season three. Yeah, the podcast where we watch the movies so that you specifically don't, don't have to. Yeah, yeah. Have to. It's the Sumble Weekend, Paul. The prince of the realm that we've consistently oh, criticised for his architectural choices. Not his environmental choices. Let's give him a chance here. Not his environmental choices. He was future-proof and, you know, really future-facing and all that. I don't know that talking to trees qualifies <laughs> you as an environmental. <laughs> they were just, you know, now he's king. They were giving him his nice little biop. biop. And, the, you know, you show your footage of him, you know. And he's stroking orangutans, which you're not supposed to do. He's feeding elephants. His environmental was, was that of a preservationist, conservationist kind. National Trust kind, rather than, you know, nice and touching and, and the nice side of David Attenborough, rather than any kind of radical urge to, 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 to inform change, wasn't it, I think. But why aren't you allowed to, or supposed to, to stroke orangutans? Well, if they're anything like chimpanzees. I'm not sure they are, though, are they? They're quite, they seem quite docile. They seem to be the sloth of the primate world, don't they? I've heard, I think I think David Attenborough tells this story, but if you gave a camera to a chimpanzee, it would smash it up, probably hit its companions with it. If you <laughs> if you were to give it to a gorilla, it would take it apart carefully, and yeah. if you were to give one to a, a, an orangutan, it would take it apart carefully and then put it back together again. <laughs> Whoa! So they're clever little things. Big things. They're pretty big, aren't they, orangutans? Yeah, I was watching on YouTube, you know, this clip of a woman drawing a smiley face to the gorilla in the enclosure, and the gorilla actually obviously responding in, in a meaningful way to it. So, yeah, gorillas are large, powerful, but seemingly quite thoughtful. Uh, yeah, but that's gorillas. I was talking about orangutans. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. Yeah, orangutans. They're the gingers of the primate world. <laughs> they so are the gingers. get along with them. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Corrections, Paul, quickly. I've got to sort a correction out immediately. The movie we're watching this week, 13 Lives, I'd said yeah. it was a Netflix movie. And it won't. Of course, it's actually on Amazon Prime. Sorry, Jeff Bezos. I don't mind that, to be honest with you, because you don't mind it that. led me on to Prime, where I realised the new the New York US Open was in its final phase. So I got to bet on some things I know nothing about. <laughs> Fine. Hey, it's not the only correction and omission from last week, though. Oh, gosh, here we go. Oh, One thing God. we failed to talk about in Nope completely which is surprising, is the fact that partway through, is it his dad, maybe, or someone, sings the old 60s question mark pop song? One-eyed, one-horn, flying purple people eater. Yeah. And of course, it's telling us, really, that that thing in the sky, which is kind of purplish, grey, but purple, kind of, Certainly kind of one-eyed, if that's its eye, or its mouth, who knows. Maybe one horned, I don't know. Is definitely a flying purple people eater. It's telling us that it's a creature, not not a yeah. machine, isn't it? Yeah. But I, I wasn't sure about that song's inclusion, because... Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit like having a film, a supposedly creepy, scary film based around Mr Blobby, and then mm. someone singing the Mr Blobby song <laughs> halfway through. <laughs> Isn't it? I wasn't yeah. sure about it. I want to use the word abstemious, but I don't know what it means, so I'm not going to do. Uh, so uh, I, I think, yeah, Can't incongruous. Incongruous, really, wasn't it? And Seemingly, yeah, yeah. Maybe. yeah, maybe. Other famous songs of the era, it, songs used to get banned for supposed drug references. One song that never got banned was that old rock and roller. I'm like a one-eyed cat peeping in a seafood store. What? That's interesting. I'm like a one-eyed cat Peeping in a seafood store. And you say that that got banned. No, it didn't reason. get banned, but it's obviously oh, a difference to me to 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 genital to. parts. Yeah. A one eyed monster. Oh, is is that what a one eyed, one horned giant purple people eater is about? Oh, oh, it could be kind of, it could be a bad trip, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's gone way over my head. Yeah, so yeah, Prince Charles. Oh, well, long live the king. King Charles now, yes. King Charles, I'm really sorry, yeah. Uh, I don't know what to say about him, really. 
No, you shouldn't, we shouldn't say anything. It's impossible to make any comment about this subject without falling into a cascade of cliches like, you know, I'm like I'm not a monarchist, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm a queenist. You know, I'm a Republican. Lots of people being edgy about the death of a woman. People saying, oh, God, it's like my own parents dying, blah, blah, blah. It's mm. like it's the nation's grandmother. Uh, it's just everything has been said five times over. I will say my hometown, my hometown Facebook page moderator came out with a criticism right. of, of, of monarchy, which you wouldn't really suspect oh. given the kind of post that he allows on his page. Uh, he's ex-army, so they tend to be somewhat conflictual in their yes. in their perspectives towards the common man, the white common man, and monarchy and all that kind of stuff. But uh, the, the people were saying, well, you know, this is very disrespectful. And he came back, I thought, which was a good one. He was like, well... You know, we've had 200,000 old people die of COVID. I don't see people lying the streets for them. Which I thought was a significant and relevant and worthwhile comment. It's true. Absolutely. And we did have an awful lot of television today devoted to driving a coffin through Scotland. <laughs> the other thing <laughs> is, it's like it, we've had this replay of what the royals do, and all they ever do is walk very slowly, watch, pre- <laughs> watch processions of people <laughs> or objects moving very slowly. It's like it's like a whole life in slow motion, isn't it? It's just really freaky. Well, they want to try cycling on the streets of uh, a major European city. <laughs> life comes at you fast that way. Well, you know, if they became bicycle monarchists and kept them most of their private wealth, I'm sure even the you know even even the staunchest Republicans among us wouldn't really have a big problem with that. You know, I mean, probably in 2015, um, you know, I might not have felt this way. But having now ha- having lived through the, the shit people, show, <laughs> the shit show that the, was this decade. Oh, sorry. Go on. You know, we've had an expression of democracy during which the people have voted for Brexit. <laughs> we've had an expression of democracy voted, where people the people have proved themselves completely incapable of making <laughs> rational choices. About suddenly, you know, a hereditary yeah. monarchy doesn't sound such such a yeah. bad idea. I mean, if, if anything, you know. Classical economics, if anything would knock down classical economics of any kind, Adam Smith variety or whatever, it's the fact that the assumption of a rational economic actor. I mean, we can see that there are no rational political actors in this country. <laughs> so by extension, we could surmise that maybe economic theory is, is, is badly, is based on, on bad assumptions also. However bad you think Charles might prove as a monarch, I think it would be difficult for him to be worse than Boris Johnson as prime minister. <laughs> And of course, if we did abolish the monarchy, we'll be faced with a dreadful and almost inevitable prospect of having him as the president or whatever replacement you role we, we have. You make a good point. Uh, however, in terms of principle, I'm not sure your good point overrides a principle. That said, I mean, uh, Liz Truss, I mean, we, we've now got extensive evidence of the fact that she's really strange with her eyes and mouth around microphones, isn't she? She just... <laughs> it's not natural. How does she do that? <laughs> how does she do it? How does she make a sentence sound so forced and so natural? Alien. Yeah. It's such yeah. a skill. I couldn't do it, you know. Enough politics and, and, what's the word, current affairs. We've time-stamped this issue also. We have, yes. Let's now wait for the music before we talk about this week's movie. Here it comes. And I get to ask you, Paul, as I often do, what is the name of the movie that we watched? <laughs> okay, don't give me any clues. I will get it. Okay, This oh, one I okay. know. This one I know because, because I spent a lot of time finding out which movie we were supposed to watch. I knew we were watching... Well, you were on the wrong service. You were looking on Netflix. Yeah, thank That's you for that misdirection. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Magic Circle. Look, I mean, what I would say is there are lots and <laughs> lots and lots of movies and half movies and half documentaries and, you know, drama documentaries about this cave rescue in t- Thailand. This I one, didn't know that. That's well, I just found out there's lots of them. Okay, this one is 13 Lives. I think it's the most lavish of all the budgets. Uh, and it's directed by somebody called Ron Howard. I you mean th- somebody called Ron Howard? Is he famous? Yes, Paul, he's famous. Because I was thinking, isn't he the lead character in Anchorman? <laughs> That's, that's Ron Burgundy. That's Ron Burgundy, yeah. So who's Ron Howard? When is it out? Good grief. Well, you know Ron Howard, of course, from watching Happy Days. Sunday, Monday, Happy Days. Is he, is he Arnie, the, the, the diner, diner owner? 
No, he's Richie Cunningham. He's, he's another redhead. <laughs> he's one of your tribe. Are you claiming him? Yes. I don't know whether he, I don't know whether he would agree to being a redhead. I'm not sure. But yes, he's a fair-haired. Let's we say, floppy-haired uh, young guy in Happy Days. But Strawberry since blonde. that time, uh, I mean, I think he's like me. I think he's bald these days. But uh, hey, he, he nothing is, wrong with a bit of status signalling there, Silverback. He is. <laughs> These days, for some time now, he's been more of a film director and producer. And he's got a bit of a, bit of a sort of track record in disaster movies and Whoa. true, true life disaster movies because he directed Apollo 13. Yes. Okay, I'm not getting a strong sense of recognition waving over me did from we, you. Did we review that at some point? We haven't reviewed it, oh, but okay. it's a film I would have thought you might have seen. I see. But you haven't seen it, clearly. No. No. Oh, God. Well, we're going to have to put it on the list, point one, because it's an important film. And it's about a real-life event, which you may know anyway, which was the Apollo 13 moon mission, which didn't go so well. Interesting. And we've had several failed attempts to get back to the moon, haven't we? The Artemis launch, yes. Yeah. Unmanned so far. But it's been delayed by fuel pump issues. I mean, that Artemis mission is a bit crazy in itself. Because they took, I mean, we watched that film about when they took uh, a space shuttle out of museum mothballs and, <laughs> and flew in it. Well, the Artemis mission is using engines from the space shuttle program. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the modern, crazy. the modern banking system is all built on what, cobalt. What, sorry, what? Yeah, just, I'll, you'll, you'll see. You'll see where the tangent comes in a second. Okay, it is tangential. The but banking it does system is all based on cobalt. It's all programmed in cobalt. cobalt. Oh, cobalt. Yeah, cobalt. Oh, cobalt. Right. Sorry for okay. my mangled vowels. Okay, uh, this is what, you, what happens when you live between continents. Is you just become this sort of you become incontinent. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Uh, so, uh, I'm ignorant about all kinds of things, which in itself is a release. But yeah, and, and so now, you know, they want to update Swift and, you know, whatever it is, that system that everything's built upon. But they can't literally find the programmers. They can't even find maintenance program programmers to maintain the legacy COBOL code on which our banking system is is built these days. Because they've all been sent to space. Is that what you're They're saying? all boomers. Uh, and oh. in the same way, I don't think we can build rockets anymore. Only the Chinese can do this, can't they? Can't they? Well, the Artemis program is not a renewable program, so they're not planning to reuse those shuttle engines. Right. So when they've launched the first one, they've got to sort of build a whole new set of engines for number two. So it's, it's a strange program. So when it comes to space people and people wanting yes. to go to space, there's a connection here, isn't there? Because Elon Musk offered his technology, reusable or not, mini submarines, to go save these kids yeah, in a cave. We need to get into that. We need to get into well, I first want to talk about Apollo 13, Paul. Yeah, Do you on. know what happened in Apollo 13? Uh, no. Okay. What, what happened in Apollo 13? Is this a well, joke? It's two, it, no, it's two okay. missions after the uh, landing, right? Yeah. Apollo 11. And Apollo 12 also landed on the moon. And mm, so it's becoming... Did they know? Did they? Could it be fake? <laughs> 11 was true. 12 could have been fake. <laughs> so by 13, I suppose it's getting a bit routine, maybe. But what happened was there was an electrical fault in an oxygen tank. Whoa. When they tried to stir it. And it caused the thing to blow up on the it's, it's on the outside of the spaceship so it didn't blow the whole spaceship up but it meant they were losing oxygen from the, the vessel whoa like they had a they had a real life countdown going on there and this is where the very famous phrase houston we have a problem no comes way from. this happened on uh, apollo 13 and ron wood made a movie about this ron howard sorry Yes, he did, starring Tom Hanks. So it's well worth seeing, but we maybe should put it on our list. And presumably, so was the movie that we're reviewing today. On IMDb, it scored 7.8. On Rotten Tomatoes, it scored 8.87, which are kind of like palindromic, aren't they? So it did really well, this one that we're watching, not Apollo 13. This is based, 13 Lines is based on actual events from 2018, not that long ago, just before COVID, happening was in Thailand. just before COVID? Well, I mean, COVID started in 19, didn't it? Or the end of 19, start of 20, something Whoa, like that. Whoa, no way. 
it centres around uh, a football team of Thai lads, young the lads. Wild boars, I think they're called, or something like that. They're called the wild boars. That's right. Paul, you would have been into this. It's all about sports. They had football, cycling. <laughs> on, on, what, on what level do you think I'm into football, Richard? Probably more so than me, aren't you? Okay. You probably yeah. in terms of cycling. Stuff. I don't know if you've ever lived in Thailand or countries like that, but these well-paid boy actors obviously come yeah. from relatively well-positioned places in Thai society. They couldn't really ride their bicycles, and when you see kids in the countryside, in any Asian country, they can really ride their bicycles. And I thought that was very unconvincing. Sorry, a little aside there. Continue. There we go. Mark down straight away from Paul. Unconvincing cycling. <laughs> it was no. They were really wobbling. You know. You know. They, they, you know. They could swing like monkeys from trees on their handlebars. So they don't waste any time at the start of this film. No. The boys are. They have a like, practice match. They're going to go then to someone's parents' house. I think they're having a party or a birthday yeah. party. Or it's something. the little boy who's stateless. Uh, four of the four of the kids aren't Thai and they aren't Burmese. They live on the border. We're right on the border of Burma and Thai. Sorry, Myanmar and Thailand here. Yeah, and uh, it's his oh. birthday party. He's having a SpongeBob cake, and they're kind of laughing at him because he's a little bit smaller than the rest of them. Like saying, "Oh, you're having a kitty cake," but it's nice joshing. It's not. It's you know. It's affectionate. It's, yeah. it's affectionate. Asian joshing. They're very, they, they're, they're very good together, males in Asian societies, you know. Very good. Before they go to the Not party, toxic. they're going to go to a nearby cave, which seemingly they've done before. Yeah. And it's it's a tourist cave. It has, like, literally has railings in the start of it. I think you can go deeper into it and stuff. Paul, yeah. have you ever been caving? I have, and I've been caving in Thailand in 2018. I didn't oh actually realise this. Are you sure it's 2018? I'm going to have to check on this. It is 2018, yeah. Wow. And it's Banchong in Thailand. Super. So, so you've been caving in the place that we're talking about. How much caving have you done then in your life? Not very much. I was with a Singaporean company uh, whose most, most of employees were Chinese. So I went on essentially a Chinese style, full, like, I went full natty. I went full kind of undercover on a Chinese tour holiday the kind where they wave a flag and people follow behind like ducklings you know <laughs> and they look whistle stop and they are whistle stop it's not a holiday at all you know it's it's literally like being trekked across various things we did fruit tasting i think uh we did some sort of cultural thing where we made thai baskets uh we were paraded around several night markets for i think and we were there for four nights we were taken to several restaurants and, of course, we did all the activity things. Uh, I was in a parachute behind a speedboat that seemed to have no sort of safety <laughs> certification. Uh, I was on a jet ski with the man sat behind me, sort of like make, corralling me to make sure I was steering, steering correctly. But mostly he was making the throttle go faster uh, and then after the 10 minute ride, he does this tight turn and kicks you off into the water and then leaves you there in deep water. You're supposed to swim back to shore, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So, a part safe. of that, part of that was a trip. One, we, we also spent two exhausting hours climbing to a Buddhist monastery. And then the same day, the afternoon, we went into some caves. Yeah. Right. So, you're in a group of Chinese tourists with a tour guide. Yeah. And you're being led into a cave. Yes. I, I mean, I don't think that's really caving. I mean, it does oh. sound like, a lot like what the Thai boys were doing, which yeah. is just wandering in in nylon sports, you know, football shirts and barefoot mostly. That's not really caving as I oh. understand it. Oh, okay. Do you know what the difference between caving and potholing is? I've got no idea, but I'm hoping you're about to tell me. Well, I, I'm not entirely certain. So it's... Fertile ground for corrections next week. But I think the dif distinction really is potholing is where you enter a cave system vertically, usually by descending a rope or a rope ladder or something. Yeah. And caving is where you walk in from grade level, you know, to a hole in the side of a piece of rock. Technically, I went semi-caving then? Semi-caving. You mean there were steps carved? Yeah, and, and lots of Buddhist yeah. effigies. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of little dolls. I, we got this in this movie, didn't we? Except they had a huge effigy at the cave entrance. 
uh, because the the mountain range looked like a reclining face and and, and and woman breasts, and so this is the Tam Luang cave. I think they called it. Thank you. And they go there at three oh seven p.m. I wrote that down. It said it on the screen. Somebody just ah, yeah, well done. And the coach goes with them. So there's 13 yeah. of them. They're not, here's a key thing why this isn't caving as I understand it, and I guess it's what you did with the Chinese hmm. people, is there's, there's no helmets, nobody's wearing any lights. They just had a few torches in their hand. But, you know, they're not wearing lights on their heads. When I was on a parachute behind a speedboat, right, okay, there was <laughs> right. like a jetty in the middle of the ocean, a big wooden jetty, and they okay. attached you to the speedboat yeah. whilst you were still on the jetty. The speedboat sped, speed away. sped yeah. away, and you had to run along the jetty to avoid yeah. being dragged. You had to stay yeah. on your feet, <laughs> and that was takeoff, Richard. If that gives you any sort of idea <laughs> about H and S and all that in Thailand, look, I did a little bit of caving at school, like in Salford, and they took a few lads who seemed to be interested. I don't know how they picked them out. It's a geeks, it's a geeky thing to oh, do. Oh, not the ones I want to get rid of. Okay, sorry. And maybe. Did it come back, unfortunately? They give you, like, all over coverall, body, you know, thingies, whatever you call them. Yeah. You know, things that have got pants and a top joined together. Wetsuit? Overalls. Oh, okay. No, 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 just made of cotton or whatever, wool or something. Yeah. You know, you, you put on Wellington boots or some kind of stout boot. They give you a hard hat. And one of those cold... Well, in those days, because they hadn't invented LEDs and stuff, they gave you, like, a coal miner style, you know... A helmet a lamp with a, with a little lead acetate battery that you wore on your belt. Whoa. The kind of caving we were doing, that uh, you do in the Peak District and Saddleworth Moor and all that stuff and limestone caves around Britain, the kind of caving you're doing often involves walking, sometimes crawling, sometimes squeezing... Yes. In, in, and that's perhaps the scariest bit that a lot of people don't like with a bit claustrophobic, where, you know, you have to flatten yourself because you can't walk into it with your shoulders straight on. You have to flatten yourself, wriggle through, and you have one foot pointing one way forwards and another foot pointing the other way backwards. You know, and you're willing to boots coming off because you're having to pull yourself through this little gap. There's a moment when you're wriggling through those where you think, wow, I've got one half of the earth on one side of me and the other half of the earth on the other side of me. And it would only have to move like an inch or two and I would be, that'd be I'd be dead. Yeah, I'd be stuck forever. Obviously, as this film demonstrates, the danger, one of the dangers of caving, apart from... Getting lost. Apart from getting lost, apart from your lights going out and having no way of finding your way around at all, the other danger possibly is that most caves are made from, made by, water passing through them. Yes. Most caves still have water passing through them. I mean, you can go to completely dry caves, but I think a bone-dry cave, I think is usually regarded as more dangerous because I think they can cave in because they're sort of long dead and yeah. no longer active, yeah. you know. They're not. Whereas a, I think a wet cave, you know, a cave that's running with water or a stream, it's sort of still being carved out, really, so they don't often really collapse. One of the dangers, then, is sudden changes of weather, rainfall and stuff can make the water levels in a cave rise suddenly. Which is what we get here in this movie. Exactly here, yeah. Not once, but twice. They'd gone in June, the end of June it was, and the monsoon season that in Thailand and this part of Thailand wasn't quite starts, due. Starts in July. July, yeah. Uh, so they weren't, as some think, they weren't being taking unnecessary risks. This was no. considered relatively safe thing to do. Yeah. Even though the cave does flood every year, it tends to start only after July. So it started raining that day, and then they got flooded that day. So you'd think, really, they would restrict access to this cave, generally, wouldn't you? But they were already in the cave. Yeah, They were in the cave when the flooding started. So flash flood, immediate, immediate flood. And, yeah. Yeah. and the point is, they were in a part of the cave that's got a little bit of higher ground. But the way that in that they'd come through, and it was two or three, maybe four kilometres in from the mm. entrance, became now completely submerged. So what would have been a scrambling and crawling path now became a swimming and a diving path. Yeah, a swimming underwater completely, and f- too far to do without special specialist equipment. Mm. 
by the time the, the parents very quickly realised because they were expecting them all to show up at the party and they don't. There was one kid who didn't go, as you pointed out. He tells the parents that they'd all gone to this cave and they all go there and they see all the bikes lined up on the outside of the cave. Oh, heck, what a moment. And they get in touch with the, the authorities and the governor of the region very swiftly calls in the Navy SEALs, the Thai Navy SEALs. Yeah. The first thing they start to do is they try pumping the caves. So they get loads and loads of pumps and they start trying to lower the water level by pumping the caves out, which is a pretty Herculean task, you know, considering the catchment area of a mountainside. You know, it would be an amazing trick to be able to pump it up. Well, there's a wise man of the mountain we meet later who knows where all the sinkholes are, where the water ingresses into the caves, doesn't it? From above, you see. So, so it's 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 leaking in from everywhere. So you 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 would say it's a it's a Herculean or a Sisyphean task to try and to try and maintain, you know, to try and reduce the water levels. Interestingly, like there is that thing you know you get in American movies where jurisdiction, the CIA and the FBI turn up and they're fighting about who's got control. There's kind of this in the background going on between the civil civilian government. And the army and the army guys. Now this is interesting because it was a precursor for the, the red and red and the red and blue fights that occurred in Thailand at this time. I was independently on vacation there, you know, just wandering through Bangkok, and the number of nights where the pitch battles, you know, where one guy in red would be cornered and led down an alleyway to be beaten up, you know. And as a foreigner, you know, all, all you can do is shout out and say, "Hey, stop!" And because you're a foreigner, often you know these these gangs or the you know these various political factions will listen and stop you know so like yeah so all that was happening and now of course thailand has stopped being whatever kind of democracy it was uh previous to 2018 i can't remember when it all when it all went around so it was weird how that was in the background the natural fact you know people say well you know civilian governments in developing parts of the world why are they corrupt you know and if they're corrupt why why couldn't the governor do what he wanted to do. Well, they're corrupt because they're compromised, you know. And I, and I thought you got this very good sense of how governments, you know, around this area in the world are compromised. Is that, yeah, there is all sorts of backhanded stuff going on, but at the same time, often their hands are tied, you know. And he was he was kept in his position because in case they needed a fall guy, you know, so he mm. can't even quit yeah. when he wants to. And this is the nature of politics. There is. Yeah, leaders might be corrupt, but at the same time, they're, they're terribly, terribly compromised, and and they don't have a free hand in anything what they do, you know. So they have to become part of that that whole culture. That 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 background was quite was instructive, I thought, given what happened in Thailand at the time and later, you know. I mean, Thailand now is pretty much a military junta, isn't it these days? So now we don't see the boys in all of this through all these shenanigans, and while they're trying to sort out the pumps, we don't know what's happened to them, whether they're still alive or anything. Nobody knows. The next thing though we see is day five is the caption. Five days already since the disappearance. And we now for the first time see the guys who were going to follow through this story mostly. These are rescue divers played by Colin Farrell and Viggo Mortensen, um, whose names in real life I think were Rick Stanton and John Valentin. Yes. We're seeing Colin Farrell's character, John, tell Rick to get himself ready because they're expecting to be called out there. And I did wonder I did wonder a little bit about this. Why would UK divers <laughs> be on the list? Uh yeah, so so essentially what we're saying here is four grey-haired white privileged males arrive at a sex tourist destination uh looking to meet underage boys in a dungeon. <laughs> Yeah, Paul, this is the kind of talk that got Elon, Elon Musk in trouble. Yeah. Listen. I'm using it ironically. I'm not making those suggestions. The reason that they may have called UK divers in is the UK, for odd reasons, seems to be one of the places in the world where cave diving is taken quite seriously and people do it to a very high standard. We are. We lead the world of caving. Yeah, we do. I don't know why exactly. I do know that Cave diving in the UK started, I think, in the 30s, way earlier than I think most people seem to have done it. And there was, like, you know, a body set up to do cave diving. Now, cave diving... But wait a minute, I mean, caves in the UK occur where there's a limestone granite transition, don't they, typically? And we've got lots of those. Usually, usually, So, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's why. We've got lots of caves, haven't we? Yeah, but we're not the only place in the world that has lots of caves. Yeah, they've got I mean, big, impressive ones that are inaccessible. Ours are little diddy but open. Well, I'll come to that. There's a good point there. 
which does make a difference. But I just want to say, first of all, the difference between cave diving yeah. and caving. Cave diving, when I was a kid, certainly, and when I was doing caving, they used to say about cave diving that it was the most dangerous sport in the, the world. the blue ribbon event. I, I heard it said once that if you start cave diving, your life expectancy is six months. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. Why is cave diving or was cave diving so dangerous? Well, first of all, you're on scuba equipment, yeah. self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, right? Now, in the sea, that has all kinds of dangers. You know, if you yeah, go too deep, the bends, yeah. you get the bends if you, if you surface too early. If you run out of air when you're down below, obviously you're going to die. But you can, at least in emergencies, Mythicates. you can always get to the surface. Yeah. They have, I mean, they have devices that they pull a ripcord or something and it and will float. float them to the yeah. top. Yeah. And they can drop the weight belts and they'll float. And you might get the bends, but it's better than suffocating at the bottom of the sea, isn't it? If you're in a cave, obviously oh, you can't yeah. do that. Yeah. There's no way of getting back to the surface quickly. The only way is to follow your route back in. And, well, obviously it's dark, so you have to have torches that work underwater. And if you run out of battery, well, you're probably going to die. Uh, so to try and mitigate that, and the fact that caves are usually full of mud and silt, yes, which will mean you can't see anything even if you have a torch, cave diving is always done with a line. A line is always laid, a rope is put down, and the diver is always supposed to be I'm going to say, in contact with the line. It's either holding it or can see it. Yeah. And you never stray from the line. If you do, you do on another line, and you so you can always get back to it. Whoa. It's all like rock climbing a bit in that respect. A little bit, except... I mean, there are people who free, free climb, right, without ropes. Yeah, daft it is. I've been watching this uh, YouTube channel called Dive Time, and it's presented by these two great guys called uh, Woody and... Uh, Oh, what's the other guy's called? Anyway, two great guys who have great chemistry. And what they tend to do is watch videos of other people doing dives, cave dives and open water dives and stuff, and they kind of critique them. And they're really pretty expert on the safety of cave diving. And I think they would be very mad with me trying to claim that cave diving is so dangerous because they would say that if you're properly certified and you follow the golden rules that cave diving, the risks of cave diving, can be managed and it can be relatively safe. But let's not kid ourselves. That sounds like an addict's charter, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you're underwater in a subterranean cave in pitch darkness, you have got to have some serious skill not to just die. And the problem is, plenty of people who do scuba diving and know all about open water diving think that they can just go into a cave with a torch underwater and they'll be fine. Yeah. And those are the guys who just die in droves, you know, every time. Best swimmers are always drown. So there are there are these signs that you find Hubris. in underwater underwater caves. And they have a little grim reaper on them. And then they they all seem to be the same. They must come from the same kind of source. But they say, stop, do not go past this point. There is nothing to see. If you are not cave certified you will die. You know? Whoa. <laughs> and, you know, cave divers get very upset with people going into their caves and dying because it usually means, first of all, someone, yeah. one of them has got to go in and oh, retrieve get the a body. skeleton, right. Okay. And secondly, quite rightly, as you say, the cave gets shut down by the authorities and they can't go cave diving. So are you, has there been much innovation in the cave diving world? I think there has. For instance... Serious cave divers, I think, used closed circuit rebreathers, whereas most scuba diving, you take a tank of air with you, maybe maybe two. Cave divers, if they know what they're doing, would never take fewer than two tanks. Wow! And and a, re a closed circuit rebreather can let you go for longer, uh, which I think recycles your air and scrubs the oxygen somehow. I think that's how they work, isn't it? It probably filters out the CO two. Yeah, exactly. Scrubs yeah. the CO two. Yeah. But also, just line discipline is much, much tighter now. So, you know, there's always a line laid in underwater caves. And, you know, they maintain those lines. And if you want to explore off the line, you take a reel of your own line. You 
tie it down onto the main line. And as you go away from the main line, you lay your new line so you can always find your way back on your new bit of line. And then they have these things called cookies, which are little plastic tags. And there's uh, some are arrows that point back to the entrance. So if you feel along the line and you feel the arrow, you know which way the entrance is. So like Hansel and Gretel principles here, basically. Yes. And then others are cookies that are sort of your cookie, and they tell other divers where you have gone. So you would clip those to a line to tell them which direction you've gone in. So if you don't come back or you get lost, they know exactly which bit of line you went down last, and they know to explore down that bit of line and see where you've gone, etc. Uh, and then as you come back out, you would remove your cocky, presumably, and put it on the other bit of line you're exploring. You know? so. Yeah. so when I was, when I was, when I got lost up a mountain the other week, you know, one thing I remarked was like, it's critical that people are able to find their way back down when they're lost. And yet, at tourist destinations in the UK, like all the signs are like cutesy wootsy little wooden things, you know, with the with the destinations etched <laughs> out of the wood kind of thing, rather than being functional, clear, big. <laughs> pieces of fluorescent aluminium, you know. And it's quite annoying that everything has to be cutesy-wootsy. So it's good that they have a functional, essentially, messaging and direction system here in Cape Diving. So for me, one of the focuses that I had about this movie was bodges, which are uh, not gadgets, but rather impromptu, ad hoc, on-the-fly inventions, yeah. And there were two aspects, I guess we'll come to one of them, plot spoiler later, is the man of the mountain, the wise, the wise man of the mountain. He invents pipes by cutting up bamboo stalks. Okay. Oh, I don't think he invents. No, he doesn't does invent it. But it's like, oh, wow, yeah, I didn't think about it. They're trying to get water off the mountain instead of going to the caves, okay? The other thing I noticed is that they had, like, a zip line set up. Uh, once the waters were receding through their pumping efforts, they had, like, a little mini zip line that just skimmed over the water. They could zoom people down on rather than wading through water, which I thought was very inventive. But we didn't see any small submersible submarines, did we? No. Look, I just want to say, first of all, Colin Farrell and Viggo Mortensen, I thought, did an amazingly good job in this film. Now, I don't really know Rick Stanton and John Valentin. Yeah. So I couldn't say that they did a perfect, you know, sort of impersonation of them. But what they really seemed to be were exactly the kind of people you expect to be <laughs> cave divers. Slightly grumpy. Very, very technical. Uh, very, very geeky. And quite geeky, yeah. yeah. Colin Farrell's character, well, he's you know, this real guy, John Valentin, he's an IT guy. And then Rick Stanton, I think, is an ex-fireman as well. Yes, that's right, yeah. yeah. But, you know, as an IT guy, he's obviously a geek anyway. But, yeah, they just really come across, don't they, as incredibly techy, loving their the, the, the sort of solution-finding aspects of what they do. Uh, and I just thought they played a brilliant sort of acting job in this film. I thought they were amazing. Of course, eventually, they do get called to go to Thailand. Uh, there's a little bit of argy-bargy, isn't there? Sort well, they, of, get, uh, they get called by an uh, expat, or, sorry, immigrant, British immigrant to Thailand, uh, who is living out there, uh, who is already on, on scene, and he, he kind of calls them out, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. So he spoke to the governor. He'd made a map of the cave. Story mm-hmm. was, he'd planned to go in the cave at roughly the same time, maybe a couple of days after mm-hmm. those boys... And, you know, he's an experienced caver. So, uh, again, no criticism really implied of the coach for taking the kids there. This experienced caver was going to go in and have a look around the caves uh, at a, around the same time. He didn't for some reason, you know, he was called away or did something else. But he had a map that he had made of the caves that he could give to the divers who, as you say, he recommended to the governor and they got called in. But there was a bit of... A bit of standoff, wasn't there, between army governor between the and, Navy and divers? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the the YouTube channel I talk about, uh, this Dive Time channel, which I'll have to put a link to, uh, Woody and his mate, they're always going on about how, you know, very skilled surface open water divers, like the Navy SEALs, you know, they say, I'm sure combat diving and diving in open water, they must be amazing. They know all kinds of things that we don't. But cave diving is a very specialist discipline. And if you don't know it, you know, you putting yourself at serious risk. It's a whole different kettle of cave unicorns. <laughs> Which does turn out to be true, doesn't it? And it sadly was true in the real life. Yeah. This this film has been described by Rick and John, I think, as being very accurate, ah. with one exception. 
One exception being that all the water in this film is very clear because all the, the sequences sure. they shoot yeah. underwater, yeah. you can see everything that's happening, obviously for cinematic reasons. In reality, they couldn't see a thing Whoa. because it was mud. The water running through those caves, which don't normally have running water through the whole thing, was just churning up all of the mud that accumulates in a cave over its you know existence. And so they couldn't see anything. Visibility was zero, which makes you makes you think, doesn't it? So this the Navy SEALs, they they first head off and don't find the boys. Our lads turn up and without real permission, they head up into the cave and find the boys to cut a long story short. That's the, those are Eventually, the first, yeah. first yeah. two expeditions into the cave, yeah. They, they go through several sections, don't they? There's this terrible section which is filled with stalagmites and stalactites. Yes. So they have to wiggle through all of these things. That are if in the you're way. claustrophobic, this is not the movie for you, by the way. No, it's not, is it? Uh, but eventually they get to this T-junction where the seals go up to and they, they press on further and lay more line. And eventually Rick breaks through the, the surface and he sees, after a few moments, all these boys sitting on this kind of this uh, little rise, this little island underground, as it were, which they called Pattaya Beach, didn't they, I think? Yeah. Now, and they're all uh, there. They get to T-Junction in three hours, 45, 49 minutes, the first time through. This is the first time through. They go back a, a couple of days the next day, I think. Okay, And they also get there in three hours and 49 minutes. I think I it think- was more like four, isn't it? Four or five hours. Well, no, the second time is exactly... They go three times, I think, in total. Well, they go several times in total. But there's a timing, three hours 49, and three hours 49. They repeat the timing, which I find unlikely. The second time through, they wouldn't be laying lines. They know where they were going. And uh, I think Ron Howard saved a bit of money by putting the same graphics up. <laughs> <laughs> but think of that, though. That is a hell of a long time to be spending underwater. Yes. Swimming against the current. Pretty fast, though, because they made a whole two kilometres or whatever, you know, which is... You know, Two to three kilometres, yeah. 500 metres an hour, you know, it's, it's impressive what they did. It's it's an astonishing feat, and it must have taken it out of them, and it must also have been pretty cold, I imagine, mm. as well. Yeah. Now, the video of the boys being found what, was, was of course, available. It, absolutely true. Yeah, it, oh, was, wow. it was published online. Hopefully taken down since then. But I don't know, you'd probably find it. I Once it's out there, it's out there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, of course, the boys are alive, but they're hungry, naturally, presumably have been able to get water, but they've had no food. They've been digging a hole, and this was real as well. They'd been trying Whoa. to dig their way out. They'd made something like five metres or something, just <laughs> digging their way through. That's incredible. Through rock. The coach had kept the boys calm by getting them to meditate. Meditate, yeah, it's a famous And they still time. had torches with batteries, so they must have been spending a lot of time in, in the dark, dark yeah. to save their batteries. But there's this absolutely agonising moment. And I th- I've got a feeling, reading, I was reading the thing that said, I think Vigo and Colin told Ron Howard to put this bit in, where after Rick had found them and they checked the boys were all okay and they'd videoed them all, they realise they've just got to go back now and they've got to leave the boys there and tell them mm-hmm. that we'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow. Another day. You know, this is at least, you know, it's seven days or something, isn't it, after they've been lost. That they've got to leave them in the dark. I think they may have left them a couple of torches, and and they go back underwater and ha- make the you know three hour journey back to the the cave mouth. Shockingly, like heartbreaking and terrifying for the boys. So really, then we get like the in, we get the act two where uh, there's quite a lot of political talk about what we're going to do. Uh, but of course, I mean, it's not really until about ten days until they can get back to see the boys. Is it in in in? As it yeah, we out. get this bit that you mentioned about the water engineer from Bangkok, who is trying to divert the streams mm. from higher up the mountain, and he's finding all these sinkholes where the water draws down into the cave system, and he's trying to block them up. And uh, you know, for all we know, he may have uh, he may have helped keep the water levels low. Well, there's a little aside at the end of the movie uh, saying that they diverted 500 million liters of water, they think, into fields. So, and at one point, yeah, they have to go to the farmers, don't they, and say, "Look, we'll have to flood your fields; you'll lose your crop." Mm. And the farmers, you know, obviously agree for the sake of the kids. But w- there's a couple of times in the film where it starts raining again, and they just put a moratorium on further dives. Mm. keeping the water out of the cave system was probably pretty essential. 
So, like I say, if you're claustrophobic, you're probably not going to enjoy this movie. <laughs> a lot of the tension, and I thought it was very well-affected tension, and the suspense builds on several things. One is cylinders scraping against rocks. Two is sudden rock falls within the cave system. Three is rain and then dramatic increases in torrents and rapid flows. Four is dropping essential equipment in the murky water. Uh, and five is just general claustrophobia. Uh I, I, it kind of worked, the tension, but given the length of the movie, which is two and a half hours, I kind of became a bit inured to it towards the end. I, 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 it, it stopped being suspenseful and started being annoying. Oh, Paul. Yeah. Oh, I, I just wish, no, I, I just wish the movie had been a bit shorter, that's all. So, day 11, the Navy SEALs go back in and they take food and batteries and stuff, yeah. but they're measuring the air in the cave, the oxygen level in mm. the cave. And although it's quite large, you know, there's 13 of them, they've been there for days and days, and the oxygen level is dropping noticeably. Yeah. Now, apparently, in reality, they'd considered trying to get an air hose down there. Whoa. But think of it. I mean, it's just... Can you imagine taking an air hose through that situation? You could just let off a few tanks, couldn't you? Well, how long would a tank last for a person? I mean, they had to take lots of tanks... They don't go through this in detail, right? Yeah. But to go for a, like a three-hour uh, dive through a cave system, you need, two tanks, you need to stage tanks along the way. Yeah, sure. Right. So taking tanks that you can just open up in the cave anyway, I mean, I think a full tank of air might give you an hour or so or something. Sure, and, yeah, and, yeah. For one person? For 13, it's just how many would you have to take through? And I think it's the same problem for a hose, if you think of the size of a hose that you might breathe through on a scuba gear, mm. imagine something 13 times the size, the diameter of that. How would you get that through the cave system that they went through? Um, I mean, as you say, we've glossed over the going through the water and through the rock and, you know, climbing over these tiny little gaps and uh, having to, like, de-rig their... Um, their scuba equipment and stuff. But the people to the moment comes, they, they decide these kids are going to die in there... We can't, we can't, they can't swim. Well, this, this is Rick, isn't it? Yeah. Rick's really grumpy when he comes out and he says, look, you know, we found them. That's great. I wish we found bodies because there's no way of getting them out. How can you get them out? Because mm. at one point, they'd, when they were coming out, they found one of the pump engineers stranded. He left it too late and the mm. water level was rising. And so Rick tries to take him through with his, he's got a sec, all scuba gear is a second regulator, I think. You put it in your mouth for your buddy to breathe mm. if his air fails. He puts him on his regulator and he tries to take him through. But this guy, not used to the sheer terror of being in completely dark water, breathing through a hose with someone, you know, leading you, panics and, you know, lets go of the regulator, bangs his head on the uh, the roof of the cave and stuff, and Rick only just got him out. Yeah. It making the point, really, that if someone is not trained... You just you can't do this. You can't, can't you swim cannot. them out. Yeah, yeah, there's no way. And you know this as a lifeguard, right? People mm. panic when they're that's the in first trouble. thing we were told. You know, if they come for you, you've got to you've got to literally punch them in the head and knock them out. Yeah, yeah you got to and you got to defend yourself and and knock them out because then they'll float in the water and won't drown. You know, but yeah, we yeah. were told. You know, if if they're coming for you, knock them out. Well, imagine imagine having to get those kids underwater for three hours. Yeah. <laughs> So this is a pivotal moment, and they realise that there's a guy back home who is also like a super expert cave diver, but also a doctor. Dr. Harry. Now, Dr. actually, Harry. he's an Australian, isn't he? Oh, he's an Australian, sorry. But they they seem to get the feeling that they can get him there, but not that he will agree to do what Rick's crazy idea is. Can I just tell you what the idea is in the style of Elon Musk? The style of <laughs> their plan is to... Find these boys, okay, dress them up in some PVC outfits called wetsuits, uh, uh, sedate them, tie their hands, neoprene, yeah, Uh, tie their hands behind their backs and then drug them with ketamine and then traffic them underground. (laughs) Now, Elon Musk's idea, on the other hand, was to build a tiny submarine. I'm making these comments in relation to Elon Musk's egregious comments about the divers, you know, which were just completely unfounded and not fair. But watching this film, it is completely obvious 
that a submarine was never, ever, <laughs> ever going to work, right? When you've got to wriggle through some of these spaces, you know, you have the, it's the very fact that you're a human being enables you to kind of get pliably to squeeze through these spaces. There's no way uh, a rigid submarine of any kind could have ever worked, right? I mean, nice, you know, thanks for your help, but no thanks. Uh, again, it's this idea, isn't it, that these guys really know what they're doing in a very specialist field of work. Yeah. And nobody else really has a clue what, it, what it's like. And that's why I find that, that YouTube video, so uh, YouTube channel, so interesting. Dr. Harry arrives, and he's like, no way, no way, you can't. <laughs> you can't. Well, think about it. He's, he's, got, he's got to jab them with needles without any equipment to, rec- you know, to monitor their heart rates or anything yeah. like that. Really. Like an anaesthetist yeah. would have in a hospital. You know, so. And there's no way he wants to be going to a foreign country to drug and probably drown and kill <laughs> like 13, well, 12 kids and a, a young man. It's just not, not a good look, is it? Oh, what you do for your holidays? Oh, yeah, I'm just going to maybe, maybe join Harold Shipman. Again, I don't know that this came through in the film so much, but to agree to do this, they the governor gave diplomatic immunity to that doctor. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if it had gone wrong, you know, he would presumably have had to just escape the country, waving his diplomatic immunity card. They they put this plan into action. They have to convince everybody. Of course, at around this time as well, one of the Navy SEAL divers dies. Hmm. Uh, something happens, doesn't he, to his airline? That's right. Yeah, get, yeah. gets it caught on a stalagmite or something. It vents a load of his air, and this is the thing, right? He's lost. A lot of his air. He's still got air right at that point, but there's no way he can get back. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's got, you know, he's too, he's too far out. He tried to hurry back, but he, he died. And he was the only person, spoiler alert, to die during this. Although, as I understand it... One of them died of an infection later. Yeah, well, yeah that's right. Which, again, is something else horrific to think about, isn't it? Of all, all that crap in that cave, that muddy water that they're skinning their knuckles in every day. Really horrible. So, cut a long story short, they you know they they take the boys. Is it? It's one at once, isn't it? Over a period of days, through the caves. Back, yeah, about four a day, something. Four a day, but one at once. Like yeah, and uh, it's it's a torturous procedure. Little boys. They've got to sedate them like every hour, every half an hour. That's right. A, yeah, a, some of them epidermic. seem to be stopping breathing under the water, but when they take the mask off, it's they're breathing. You know, and that kind of thing. There are some. So some treacherous moments. They drop a few needles that are absolutely necessary in the murk, but manage to retrieve them. I hope that's all factual because it, it makes for a really good movie. The problem is the little boy, the one who's having a birthday party, his his face is too small to fit the masks. So they kind of have to bodge again a solution where they kind of, uh, you know, crimp a mask onto his face and hope. hope yeah, they get the through. smallest mask they can buy in, in Bangkok or whatever, and then they, they sort of duct tape it on, don't they? And... Mm. And yeah, uh, with heroic effort, they managed to wiggle these boys through, trussed up and sedated, and get them all out. And they all wind up, you know, in hospital. Interestingly, right, and again, I read this, they don't make this clear in the movie, but the Aussie doctor, when he's sedating them, he's got this really kind of bedside manner thing going on, doesn't he? All doctors do, yeah. yeah, yeah. He talks to them about the World Cup. But only one of those boys could speak English, so mind you, he was just—he was just giving them football results. So they probably could figure enough of that out, couldn't they? But the order that they went out in, they—they mm. they asked the football coach guy, you know, what order they should go out in, and uh, he selected the boys who lived furthest away to go first because he was expecting they'd have to cycle back. <laughs> what? <laughs> Wow. Charming. The other thing is, of course, that there was like two or three Navy SEALs who stayed in the cave with the boys after they after they brought them food and stuff. Yeah. And they stayed there. They didn't go back for all that, the, you know, because they, they weren't out till day 17, right, or day 18. Yeah. So they must have stayed there for like 10 days in the cave themselves, those Navy SEALs. Wow. All of the guys involved in this were drop-dead heroes. Without doubt, yeah. You know, I was in two minds about the movie. You know, I didn't really... I, I thought really the cinematic techniques to maintain the tension, it's a, it's a movie, obviously, fail because of the length of the movie. And and then halfway through, I was thinking, well, I wish there was more drama and less documentary. But, you know, having having watched it, I think it's really good that it's almost semi-documentary. 
in its approach. It's fascinating, you know, when we see this genuine bravery that uh, kind of possessed the whole community uh, and a whole worldwide community. You know, I think 5,000 people turned up to help, you know. There was supposed to be a lot of heartwarming pathos in the movie, and it did work. You know, it's, it was a confirmation of, you know, maybe one of humanity's better moments, I think, this 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 whole escapade. So. You put it very well there. I really enjoyed this movie. Mm. I didn't realise until it started it was Ron Howard. And then I saw Viggo Mortensen and Colin Farrell, and... I, that they were doing such a great job because it's quite unlike them in some ways. You know, they're not they're playing against type in a lot of ways. And yeah, I, I was really impressed by this, and I was genuinely like interested in the subject matter as well. I remember the event, and this you know led me to discover a lot of details about it. I guess one way it wasn't quite like the real thing mm. is obviously we're focused on these two guys, Rick and John. And then they bring in three more divers, don't they, uh, from England. I mean, in reality, lots and lots of rescue divers were involved because, as mentioned, you know, to do each of those dives, which we see in like five minutes or ten minutes on screen, it was obviously, you know, three hours there, three hours back, six hours every time they went through. And they did that several times, even at the end of the movie, to get the boys out. And each of those dives would have need air cylinders staging at various points. You can imagine how many divers must have been involved mm. at every stage to do that. It was just, you know, so many people were involved. So there was a huge team, even of the English divers there. In fact, one of the English divers himself got in trouble about a year later and had to be rescued in, somewhere in the States, I think. So maybe this this whole, I mean, they said it was this... Was this a message from the goddess of the mountain? Maybe this is a message from aliens to Elon. You know, have more faith in humans across the world if you want to come to our planet Mars. Give me a score then, Paul. Why don't uh, you? <laughs> sorry. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I've not really thought about scores. Uh, let's oh. have a think. Okay. Generally speaking, in terms of in terms of setting this story out as a plot, you know, as a documentary plot, great. I just felt like it was too long. Apart from that, it was great. Uh, I'm going to give it a seven. Too long for Paul. I'll go eight uh-huh. for its accuracy. Obviously, it takes some liberties, but it's a film. It has to. Now, who's the guy who does the reviews, uh, the funny reviews of like outdated tech on YouTube? You mean Techmoan? Is that the guy? No, like uh, he almost does it on his sofa. Well, Ashens, Ashens, yeah. the, the brown so, sofa. Like, in terms of capturing Ashens' personality in four people. Like, you know, geeky, <laughs> geeky but very yeah. talented, you know. Uh, yeah, okay. I thought, you know, I thought the actors did a good job, you know, and uh, the supporting cast of uh, of Thai actors and boy actors, just generally great. So I thought the acting was definitely a strong point. I'm going to score it an eight. I thought the acting was brilliant. I'll give it a nine. Whoa. Exceptionally good. Okay. How about cinematography? I mean, did you get the idea of dank, wet caves and all that kind of stuff? Did I... Brilliant. You Atmosphere, know, they, they did this by building, the, there was a sound stage that they could flood and they built these stages of rocks and stuff and put water through them. And Vigo and uh, Colin Farrell would actually did this for real. They learned how to scuba dive, if they didn't already know, and they trained for it. And they actually did all of the kind of water stunts themselves, basically, as I understand it. Yeah. Amazing. And the cinematography, yeah, okay, so... The water was nowhere near as crystal clear as it was depicted. But I think um yeah, I'll give it an eight. Licence of depiction, I think. So yeah, I'm gonna go I'm gonna score did I score that? No, seven, I think, on the cinematography. Anything else to say about it? Well, a- accuracy maybe and true to lifeness. Yeah, docuscore. Tension. Yeah. Docuscore, docuscore, okay. Yeah, it's very informative. I learned a lot about all kinds of stuff here. Uh I, I just generally thought that it gave a very, very Accurate snapshot of what must have been going on that mountain over a period of weeks. So this is maybe my highest score. I'm going to score it in nine for its docu. Interestingly, docu-value. they didn't mention Elon Musk's intervention at all, did they? They didn't even stop to say that no, that's a pointless idea. <laughs> or you know his egregious comments about the divers. No, well, yeah, that's probably the subject of a court case that we shouldn't mention either, isn't it? Uh, so. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, for uh, accuracy, I will give it a, a strong eight. Overall, you didn't seem to enjoy it as much as I did. You thought it was too long. I didn't 
find it dragged at all. So I'm going to give this certainly an eight. It might even be a nine. Somewhere around there. Eight and a half. Eight and a half. I'm going to go seven and a half. It's definite recommend. Okay, it's a great movie. Uh, and yeah. I wasn't I was, expecting it to be so good. That's why. I was getting ready to score this four or five, to be honest with you. I didn't realise how big a movie it was. I didn't realise it had the stars in it. Uh, I thought it was just going to be, you know. I thought it was going to be dripping with moralistic, you know, sort of post Spielbergian pathos. Uh, and it wasn't. It wasn't cloying or sentimental. There were some real sentimental moments, but they were they were genuinely moving, you know. Uh, it, it, there were some really moving moments in this movie. So overall, 7.5, recommend. I was really surprised. Surprised yourself by going to see it. Woof. Hey, another good one, Paul. <laughs> Which brings us on to next week. Richard, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what you want to watch next week. What are you in the mood for? I am very keen now to put Apollo 13 on the list, another Ron Howard movie that you seem to have missed. Right, okay. Well, I'll, 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 I'll allow that. I'll have that. Apollo 13. And I'm going to put that against... Oh. A movie we've talked about several times in the past few weeks. Uh, it begins with Inter. Ends in... Scepter. Scepter, yes. Interceptor, <laughs> not Scepter. That's Inception. Wrong movie. Interceptor versus <laughs> Apollo 13. The choice is yours, Richard. All right. Before it gets removed from Netflix forever, I think we'd better see Interceptor. <laughs> okay, the die is cast. It is Interceptor. Billed as the worst Netflix movie ever. Okay. So join us, join us with shits and giggles if you want to hear about what we thought about that movie. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us. Ciao for now. See you on the next one. Goodbye. Thank you.